The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. If you would, please take your Bibles and open to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. just want to take a few moments to remind us what this is all about, because there's so much confusion about baptism today. There are some who say that Baptism has no place in the church today. They, they say that it was just for a unique time, for a unique group of people, in a unique setting. And so there are some today who would deny that baptism has any place in the church. There are others who say that it actually saves you. I remember when I was a pastor at UCLA, we had a campus ministry of about 300 students. And there was another campus ministry there who actually taught that you had to be baptized to be saved. And you weren't saved until you were baptized. And so we spent a lot of time shepherding our students to understand that baptismal regeneration is not God's intent and it's not found in the scriptures. There's confusion today. Some say infants should be sprinkled to ensure the washing away of sin and therefore salvation. Others say that only adults should be be baptized. There's a group that even practices a baptism for the dead. There's confusion today about what baptism is and what it's about. But it's really not that confusing. It's really not that hard for us to understand. And as we look at the scriptures, we're going to see that the scriptures clearly teach believers' baptism. That baptism is an ordinance or a symbol for believers once they've trusted Christ and they come to Christ and they symbolize that with believers' baptism. I love how one longtime chairman of theology at a seminary defines believers' baptism. He says, believers' baptism is a public testimony of one's union with Christ. The act symbolizes a believer's identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The act is a solemn reminder to the individual and to all who observe that there is no turning back. Isn't that good? I love what he says here. There's a solemnity to this. It's a reminder to the individual and to all who observe that there is no turning back. And as these people come in a few moments to share their testimonies, that's what they're saying. They're saying there's no turning back. I've trusted Christ. I've repented of my sin. I've received forgiveness. I'm a new person now in Christ, and I'm not going back to worldly living. I'm not going back to sinful living. I'm not going back to selfish, fleshly living. I want to live for Christ. That's what they're saying. That's what baptism is about. Before we hear their testimonies, I want us to open the word together. And to help us understand the importance and the significance of this, I want to look at probably the best and the biggest baptism service that was ever held. It's in Acts chapter 2. And I want you to imagine just for a moment a scenario where the Spirit of God was, was working greatly in the hearts of people. I want you to imagine a preacher who is preaching with conviction and with boldness and with clarity and with power. I want you to imagine where the gospel was clearly preached. I want you to imagine a scene where people were cut to the heart and they came under powerful conviction. In fact, 3,000 people were saved and 3,000 people were baptized. It has to be the biggest baptism service that was ever held. It's not just fiction, it actually happened, and it happened in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Let me set the scene for you. Jesus has been crucified. He's died, he's been buried, he's risen from the dead. It's now in the intervening time between his death and his ascension. Forty days between his 
death and his ascension. He has appeared to many people. He's appeared to the disciples and to the women and to 500 people at a time. And just before he leaves, he gives them the charge in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. You know it as the Great Commission. He says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is how he leaves. This is his final charge to the disciples. Go make disciples and baptize them and teach them. His actual last words occur in Acts 1, verse 8, where it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. The Holy Spirit is given here in Acts chapter 2, and the church grows, and it explodes. And you see the church going from the small nucleus of believers in Jerusalem to this worldwide movement throughout the book of Acts. In fact, numerous times throughout the book of Acts, it says, and God was adding to their number and the number of disciples increased and continued to grow. And here's this church that's just been born and now it's growing and it's growing and it's growing and it's growing and it's expanding. That's what the book of Acts is about. And it all starts here in Acts chapter two. This is Pentecost. This is 50 days after Christ's death. And it's here that the Holy Spirit is given Acts chapter 2 says that they're all together and they're, they're meeting together. The disciples, the believers. There are all kinds of people in Jerusalem there for, for Pentecost. And it says there was a noise like a rushing wind and appeared on them tongues of fire. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And some began to speak in tongues. And people heard the gospel being proclaimed in their own language. This is the first part of Acts chapter 2. Look with me then at verse 14. Acts 2 verse 14 says, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. I love that, don't you? Here's Peter, the guy who just a few days before that, a few weeks before that, denied Christ, left Christ in his hour of greatest need. And here he is now, filled with the Holy Spirit, standing up and publicly proclaiming and saying, men, women, listen to my words. I love that. Peter's a changed man. He's emboldened. He's gospel-saturated. And the Holy Spirit has given him supernatural courage to speak about Christ says he raised his voice. He's speaking with power. He's speaking with authority. And for the next 23 verses, he preaches one of the most gospel-centered messages ever. Look in verses 16 to 21. He quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Joel, the prophet, who prophesied that a day like this would come. And so Peter goes back to the Old Testament, to Joel, and says, this is exactly what I told you would happen. Joel prophesied this day, and now it's, it's happening. It's here. And then, starting in verse 22, he begins to preach the gospel. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, this man, Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, has been delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You've nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men 
and put him to death. Peter begins, begins to preach Christ. He says, this man whom God ordained before the foundation of the world, you have put to death. See what he's doing? You see the tension here between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? There's a tension between those, and we must preach both of those. On the one hand, the death of Christ was preordained by the sovereign plan of God. On the other hand, it was performed by the hands of godless men. He was killed. And yet, verse 24 is the good news. And yet God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And so Peter says, look, at he was dead, but now he's alive. God has raised him from the dead, for it's impossible for him to be held in the power of death. Verses 25 to 28, he, he quotes from David to prove Christ's resurrection. Verse 29, he says, David's in the grave, but not Christ. Christ is alive. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. See what he's doing? He's taking them right to the heart of the gospel. The death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's the conclusion of all this? Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Friends, that's gospel-centered preaching right there. That's the kind of preaching that needs to happen today. That's the kind of proclamation that needs to transform our churches. Gospel-saturated preaching that goes back to the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. What effect do you think this had on the people? Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, imagine the masses and the crowds of people that are in Jerusalem and they're hearing this preaching. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? You see, when, you, when you're confronted with that kind of preaching, that's the question you have to ask. You can't just say, well, that was good, uh, that's, that's, that's interesting. No, when you hear that kind of preaching, you must ask yourself the question, what impact must this have on my life? Verse 37 says they were pierced in the heart. They were stabbed, pricked. Their, their consciences were wounded. They were cut to the heart. And so they cried out, what should we do? That's the power of the word. It's the power of the cross to cut through your heart and show you what's there. Well, look at how Peter answered the question. Verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says you do two things. Number one, you repent. You, you come to Christ. You turn from your sin and you place your trust in Christ. You embrace the gospel and you receive Christ as Lord and Savior and then you be baptized. Friends, that's believer's baptism right there. You get saved, you get baptized. Verse 38, he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He's not teaching here that baptism produces forgiveness. This is not baptismal regeneration. He's not saying baptism saves you. He's not saying that if you get baptized, all your sins will be forgiven. No, the issue is you come to Christ, you repent, you seek forgiveness from him, and to show your fact that you've been changed and transformed by Christ, then you'll be baptized. This is an outward sign of an inward reality. Baptism is a visual picture of what takes place in your life and your heart when you come to Christ. 
3,000 people saved, 3,000 people baptized. I want to just briefly give you, in light of that, three implications. These will be very short, but three implications that I want to draw for you regarding baptism from, from this passage. First, number one, is that salvation and baptism are inseparably linked. We see here, first of all, that salvation and baptism are inseparably linked. What I mean by that is there's a close connection between those two. There must be. Now, these people needed to, they, you need to know that these people did not do this flippantly. There was a cost to this. There was a cost to coming to Christ. There was a cost to being baptized in that day. It risked alienation from their culture and the synagogue and their families. It was costly to them. And yet here they are, saved and now wanting to be baptized. It seems from this passage that all those who were saved that day were baptized that day. And I love that. They didn't put it off. They didn't wait. They didn't delay. They didn't say, well, I'll think about it and see if I want to get around to this someday. No, that day, as they were coming under conviction of the Spirit and coming to Christ, that very day, they said, I must be baptized today to publicly proclaim my love for Christ, for what he's done. You see, they couldn't wait to show others that they've been transformed by Christ. That's what the gospel does to you. That's what salvation does to you. You can't wait to stand up and publicly tell others how you've been saved. You're overcome with affection for Christ. You've been adopted into his family. You're a new creation. You love Christ. You're instantly fit for heaven. God sees you as perfect. And you can't wait any longer to publicly state your allegiance to Christ. This is one of the truths about baptism and salvation. They're inseparably linked. In fact, in the early church, Christians were often known as the baptized ones. They were known as the people who've been baptized because they were so closely linked with their salvation. Ephesians 4 verse 5 says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, which is another way of saying one salvation. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, Nothing is more plainly taught in the New Testament than that it is the duty of every believer in Christ to be baptized. So we see that here in the early Testament, or the early church in the New Testament, that they came to Christ and they immediately wanted to be baptized. And so today we have people who are saying, I don't want to wait any longer. I don't want to delay this. I don't want to, I don't want to put this off any longer. I want to be baptized to demonstrate my love and affection for Christ. There's a second lesson I want to draw from this. The second lesson is that immersion is the proper mode of baptism. A lot of confusion on this today. But immersion is the proper mode for baptism. Look in verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized. The word baptized literally means to dip completely, which we will be doing today. We will be dipping them completely. And it also means to drown. We won't be doing that, Lord willing. But it means to put you so far under the water that you are completely and totally immersed. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean to sprinkle. doesn't mean to dab. doesn't mean to pour. It means to immerse. Martin Luther himself said that it refers to something being dipped in water such that it's entirely covered with water. The mode is very clear. The mode that God has given us in the scriptures for baptism is immersion. 
And in fact, we see this pattern developed all throughout the New Testament. Matthew 3.16, the verse that we just read this morning in our scripture reading time, says Jesus came up immediately from the water. Why? Because he was in the water. Speaking of John the Baptist in Mark 1.5, it says all of the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. It was in the river. John 3 verse 23 says John was baptizing because there was much water there. Why do you need much water? You need much water because you put people in the water and you pull them out. It's his proper mode. In Acts 8 verses 38 and 39, referring to the Ethiopian It says he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the Ethiopian, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The proper mode of baptism, according to the scriptures, is immersion, putting the person under, because only that picture illustrates for us properly what baptism pictures. See, when you're you're in Christ, you're a new person. The old has gone And the new has come. And that's what immersion illustrates. When a person goes under the water, it's a symbol of the washing away of their sins and a washing away of their new life or their old life. And when they come up out of the water, it's a picture of who they are in Christ. They're a new creation. They're totally clean, totally transformed. So this mode that is laid forth for us in the pages of Scripture is the mode of immersion. Today, as we baptize these five people, I want you to think about this because it illustrates what's taken place in their life. It's taken, it's, it illustrates what's taken place in your life as well. If you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are completely clean and totally transformed. There's a third lesson, a third truth that we must learn about baptism from this passage. And it's this, number three, that baptism illustrates our union with Christ's death and resurrection. It's an illustration of our union with Christ. Not only does it picture the fact that we are new creation, it also illustrates our identification with Christ. And so you have these 3,000 people on Pentecost having just heard a gospel-centered message, repenting of their sin and placing their trust in Christ, and all of them saying, I must be identified today with my Savior He has died, been buried, and raised from the dead. And I too want to identify with the fact that I have died, been buried, and resurrected with Christ. This is what baptism illustrates. Romans 6 makes this clear that says that we were dead with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, and we have been raised with Christ. Colossians 2 verse 12 says we've been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. This is the great truth of baptism. It illustrates our identification with Christ's death and resurrection. In the early church, when those believers were baptized, they were required to give a statement. And here's the statement that most of them would give as they were baptized. It says this, I hereby confess in my willing submission to this divinely appointed ordinance my glad obedience to the Lord and Savior. In this symbolic way, I show my identification with the one who bore my sins, took my place, died in my stead, and was buried and rose again for my justification. 
So in being immersed into water and coming out, I thus publicly declare my identification with my Lord in his death, burial, and resurrection on my behalf with the intention to walk with him in newness of life and function as a member of his body. That's what these five people are saying today. They're saying, I want to be identified with Christ. I want to be identified with his death, his burial, his resurrection. And I want to walk in the newness of life. Maybe some of you are here who knew these people before they were saved. And you can say, I, I knew that person before. And I knew what they, were, what they were like. But because of their identification with Christ, they're different. They're new people. They're not the same that they used to be anymore. And they've been transformed by him. So these are some of the truths that we learn about baptism. These are some of the things that make this a very precious time for us as a church family and for these people who are being baptized today. Let me pray, and then we're going to invite these five up to give their testimonies. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, you do not stutter when you speak about these things. You're very clear. And we thank you for the powerful picture that baptism is. We thank you, Lord, that it demonstrates for us the reality of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross and through his resurrection. Lord, thank you that you make life, spiritual life, eternal life possible for us because of your son's sacrifice. Lord, we pray that if there are any here today who've never truly embraced Christ, they've never truly turned from their sin, they've never truly adopted the gospel into their own hearts, Lord, draw them to yourself. Bring them into a relationship with you. May today be the day of their salvation. Lord, for those who are going to come now and publicly give their testimonies, we pray that you'll encourage their hearts, free them from the fear of man. Lord, let any nervousness they have be calm and let them boldly and publicly declare the glories of Christ. So we commit these five to you now in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.